Listener Production. Dave Hughes gets called Hughesy by everyone except his mum. And everyone includes strangers on the street, parents at his kids' school, audiences who come to his comedy shows. There's a familiarity that comes from him being a household name just about everywhere in this country. Thank you. It's great to be here. A uh, big crowd. It's great, yeah? Great crowd. Never forget that. The stand-up comedian turned radio and TV star has done just about all there is to do in the Aussie entertainment industry. He's co-hosted Glasshouse and The Project, been on Hey Hey It's Saturday and Spicks and Specs. He's a guesser on The Masked Singer and one-third of Today FM's Husey, Ed and Erin. Yeah, I tell you what, it's annoying at the lights when you because there's oh. nothing else to do at the lights. <laughs> I'm not allowed to look at my phone. You know what I mean? So, help me, Eliza. you've got at the lights. Then you look around, someone's, oh, there's Husey. Yeah. You know, you know <laughs> second knuckle deep. <laughs> oh. But what is Dave Hughes like under the froth and bubble of celebrity? What do his kids think of his radio antics? What made him give up booze at age just 21? And where does his passionate veganism come from? My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Coming up soon, Bron is jumping into the studio for The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Dave, that's Husey. Hughes. Dave Hughes, welcome to the weekend briefing. My first question is this Does everyone call you Hughesy, and is it weird when people you don't know use a nickname? No, not at all. I've been I've been Hughesy since primary school, so it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a long term name which I answer to, and uh, yeah, there's no. If my wife called me Husey, that would be weird, <laughs> or my mum, <laughs> or probably my you know, my sisters or brother. But um, yeah, everyone else. Sometimes they call me Dave. Sometimes they call me Husey. So yeah, it's either I, I I answer to Dave or Husey, probably equally the same. Yeah, right. Because I always wonder if using a nickname when you hardly know someone or you've met them for the first time is like an attempt to create false closeness. And I imagine. Given your Australian celebrity, you come across a whole bunch of people who try to create that immediate closeness. I come across a lot of people who say hello. Uh, yeah, like yeah, all all day basically in Australia. So and outside Australia, if they're Australian. So um, and I am very comfortable with it to be honest. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll front foot it basically. So I mean, I'll I'll smile at people who don't know who I am, and I expect that they do know who I am. So I've got no, <laughs> I've got no issue with that. Um, yeah, people feeling comfortable around me. Although every now and again you get someone who feels way too comfortable, which happened recently. I just, you know, where a guy I was I was I was on a actually I was on a, I was on my son's scooter, and I was uh, scooting to get a coffee, and uh, someone yelled at me. Um, a group of blokes uh, congregating in the middle of the day in a, in a mall, if you know what I'm talking about, those groups of blokes who hang out in malls and uh, yeah, yeah. having their midday Tuesday party. Um, and one bloke, they all yelled, Husey! And, like, and then one bloke goes, you stay there, I'm coming to get a high five. And uh, oh I'm like, oh, God, all right, yeah, I'll stay here and get up, give this guy a high five. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, But as he was a big bloke and um, as he's given me a high five with one hand, his other hand... Did something. It went low. It was inappropriate, to be honest. And it was Ooh. like, yeah. And I'm like, mate, what are you doing? Don't do that. And he's like, 
He took his hand away, but it was like, that's a bit much. Anyway, that's way too close. Do you ever miss sort of the anonymity of life before being a household name? Uh, uh, Look, I can get that anonymity if I do go overseas. There's no Australians around, so it's not far away from me, to be honest. If I will, before COVID, I could, but uh, and that's happening again soon with the internationals. Airport's open, but um, I'm really relaxed either way. I honestly, I don't care. I've, yeah, the more and more I've yeah. gone along in life, I, I'm not. I'm less worried about you know trying to be recognised or trying not to be recognised. So yeah, I am really relaxed about it. All right, I want to know about you as a kid. Were you always the funny kid? No, no, I was a shy kid, uh, you know, it took me, uh, and I was, I was a, a thinker, so my mother always say, always a thinker, so, an, an overthinker. So like a warrior? A warrior, yeah, here's an example of me worrying, but uh, back in the 70s, a lad who lived up the street from me um, sadly passed away through leukaemia, you know, I mean, I'm getting very deep here, but then that meant, and he was my age, and that, and he was probably about five when it happened, and he was like my little friend from up the street, and uh, so I worried and worried and worried all through my childhood that I was going to get cancer. You know, it's like, yeah, that was, yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. So I would, I would look for every lump on my body that wasn't meant to be there and go, Mum, have I got cancer? My mum was a nurse and she was very matter of fact. And uh, she would go, no, nah, no problem. And just, yeah, she would not entertain any of my worries. So, yeah, but I was always thinking and I was... I was a little narcissist as well. I'd always want to be a hero from a young age. And when I wasn't, I'd feel uh, that, you know, God had let me down by not letting me, you know, be the number one footballer or the number one whatever, basically. Were you a religious kid? Uh, we were a religious family. We were well, Catholic. And uh, yeah, so my nana, uh, she was a, a devoted Catholic. So, and yeah, so we used to go to church every Sunday. Yeah, by the end of the secondary school, I, I'm, the only subject I ever failed at, at secondary school was year 11, uh, religious education, which I got an F on. So, But that was, the, that was the year that I got really funny, actually, and that was the class that I got funny in. I did a speech in, re, in year 11, religious education class, on, on a potential saint, and uh, I hadn't prepared my speech, and I opened a book and just started improwing a speech about this uh, English woman called Sally Trench who was uh, who looked after homeless people, and uh, and the my audience, which was the, my classmates, laughed so hard that I think that was the day I knew I wanted to be a comedian. Yeah, right. <laughs> they gave me 10 out of 10. There was a class voted, uh, you know, speech, and I got the highest marks for that speech of anyone who did the speeches. But the the Christian brother who ran the class, Brother O'Brien, he didn't like it and he failed me. He failed me. But so the irony is him failing me in that class led to the career that I ended up with. <laughs> what were your parents like? What was your relationship with them? That was pretty good, yeah. My dad has passed, but he was a funny man, a Des. So, I mean, I went through the usual sort of uh, fighting with your father situation, though. So, um, but he was very funny. Uh, probably, look, he was he always say, he'd always say, oh, I, I should have went to, I didn't, I had to leave school and that was back in the day. Everyone had to leave school and get a job. So, he became a, a house painter. Yeah, so and ended up working at a Nestle's factory, actually, so a Nestle's back in the day. Uh, so he was a hard worker, hard drinker, you know, as that's fair to say. He was a hard drinker and um, heavy smoker. And, uh, yeah, yeah. part of the reason I don't drink anymore is or I stopped drinking young was because, you know, 
I think drinking can be a negative thing, basically. So, yeah. So, but he was a good man, but yeah. And uh, mum is uh, still with us. Uh, she's 81, Carmel, uh, a nurse. She grew up in an orphanage. Um, so, and she's a uh, very matter of fact and, uh, yeah, very smart woman and uh, a rock for our family. And, uh, yeah, so she's uh, done really well. When did you give up booze? I gave up booze when I was 22. Coming up to 30 years sober. No, it was just before my 22nd birthday. I was still 21, in fact. It was um, November 1992 when I stopped drinking and uh, haven't had a drink since. And when you gave it up, was it with that intention? Did you think you were hitting pause for a while or did you think 30 years later you still wouldn't have touched the stuff? I, I was going to hit pause and I was depressed at the time. I dropped out of uni. I was directionless. I was, you know, drinking too much when I did drink. I didn't get drunk every day, but whenever I did get drunk, which was often enough, I would just get obliterated. And that was that had been happening since I was like 15, I suppose, so six, seven years of that behaviour. And um, I thought I'd stop for a, a six weeks till Christmas Eve and, and I got to Christmas Eve and I hadn't had a drink and I and I and that's when I that's when I thought, hang on, you know, if I start drinking again I'll just be like I was before. And I thought, nah, I'm not drinking anymore. And so that was, uh, the Christmas Eve was, the, 1992 was the renew. I really made the decision not to drink anymore. So, yeah, and here we are 30 years later. So, and my, and I started to get happier straight away, really, to be honest. So, so it, there was no, never a reason to go back to it. So you know, I realised that drinking didn't make me happy and it actually added to my stress and uh, I'd be, I was better off without it. So, yeah, here we are 30 years later. Successful comedy careers rarely come about quickly. They tend to involve a bunch of other paid jobs to support you in the early days. Tell me about the worst job you had while you were still trying to make it as a comedian. Yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I dropped out of uni. I remember in my last uni degree that I, I did a couple of uni degrees. I tried a couple of uni degrees. I tried, I actually, I started in information technology in 1989, just before the internet started. So, you know, I could be. Oh, wow. Uh, I could be one of those Atlassian You could have guys. been a tech billionaire. I could have been a tech billionaire, but I just could not be bothered. It was so boring. The coding, God, that's boring. But anyway, so <laughs> I didn't know where I was going. The internet hadn't started. It was just, you know, at that time it was just nerds sitting in back rooms, you know, working with numbers. I had no idea the opportunities financially that were going to be available. Who knew it was going to be a thing? Who knew it was going to be as big as it was? It would all be rich. Uh, yeah, anyway, so... Um, I dropped out of that and I did a business degree. I dropped out of that as well. And in my last, I remember failing miserably my last exam thinking I want to do comedy anyway, so it doesn't matter. And it was a real dream then. But yeah, it took years, to, number of years to make a financial, you know, or make a living out of it. I used to, I worked in an abattoir. That was my first full-time job. So You're a vegan. How was... Abattoirs are rough places. There's, uh, you know, and I've said this before, but I'll say it here again. You know what amuses me is when every five years Four Corners does an expose on an Indonesian abattoir and, like, you know, people ban, ban Indonesian meat or whatever. But then the, the people who eat meat have got to realise that they're cruel places, whether you're in Indonesia or anywhere. It's a, it's, I mean, it's a brutal industry. So if you really care about, you know, not harming animals, you, well, you don't eat meat. That's that simple. So, and anyone who says other, anyone who gets angry when a horse gets slapped and then goes eat some meat pie is ridiculous. 
to be honest, because it's a very cruel thing to happen to animals. Anyway, but it took me a number of years. I didn't, I didn't I immediately stop eating meat when I worked at the abattoir. So I'm not, not as if I had a light bulb moment then. But um, yeah, anyway, that's a it's a side note of, of people's hypocrisy. Um, but I worked in abattoir for a year, and then I, I've done a lot of labour, a lot of labouring jobs. I tell you, the hardest I ever worked was was putting in bores and backyards in Perth where me and another bloke used to, you have to put a bore in by just twisting a pot and there's sand based, everything's sand in WA. So you can actually put a bore in a backyard without using any machinery. You can just use your bare hand and just twist a pole long enough that the, 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 the pole goes down deep enough they find water. So... I just remember getting so many blisters that I thought, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going. My hands were shredded. Probably the hardest day's work I've ever done. But I did a lot of labouring jobs as, a, as I was trying to make a living as a comedian. When you're doing that early stand-up, I assume you're having a whole bunch of hits and a whole bunch of misses as well. What kept you pushing through the nights where it didn't work? Yeah, well, the first night I ever did did not work at all. So, you know, at the time, I was, still, I was only like 23 or 22 or 23, so I, but I was young, but I had dreamed about it. I dropped out of uni. I had nothing else going on in my life. I thought, I'm going to be a comedian, and I went on stage at a stand-up comedy venue in Perth, and no one laughed at all. I got absolute donuts, and the light, the light was in my face, and I was like I was being interrogated. And I was talking about, I was doing jokes about being teased at school and no one thought they were funny. It just looked like I was sad and whinging about my life. And I remember walking out of this venue and some bloke yelled out, you, they were right to tease you at school. You're a loser. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, this is harsh. At the time, I was living with a guy who'd driven over from country Victoria with me to just hang out in Perth. And his name's Rat and he's still a friend of mine, but I, he, was a, he was a brickie. And yeah, I was living with Rat in this dodgy flat in Scarborough, and Scarborough, a beachside suburb of Perth. I went back to the flat and Rat was interested in how, he said, how'd you go? And I said, nah, not very well. And he said, do you know why? And I said, oh, not really. And he, he looked at me in the eye and he said, because you are not funny. And I'm like, this is my support system of my first gig. And then I was so embarrassed, but I thought if I don't get back on stage as soon as possible, I'll never do it again. So I dragged myself back to the same comedy venue the next week and they let me back on stage and uh, I talked about how bad the first gig was actually and and I got a few laughs. I didn't like storm yeah. but I got enough. I kept my dignity. I you know I kept my cool and so that was probably the bravest thing I've ever done in stand-up comedy terms is that second gig of just getting back up there and because uh, it's so embarrassing when no one laughs. You feel like you're the biggest asshole because you think everyone's looking at you going, you are deluded. You are not funny. You're a bore and we all hate you. <laughs> You've been in the comedy game a fair while now. How has the content of your stand-up changed? Look, I don't think it's really changed that much. My content basically is mostly around personal experiences and, uh, you know, from the early days, comedy's always been therapy for me. So, and it's, I think for anyone it is, it's like, you know, a friend is someone who'll listen to your sad stories and laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's like good friends are ones where bad things happen in your life and you can tell them and they'll laugh along with you about how, you know, just the silliness of life. And that's what comedy is really. You sit, you go into a room of people and they all laugh at how silly life is. So yeah, I've always talked about 
things are going. And the failures of my life have what got me my biggest laughs. So, and no matter what level you are in life or wherever you are, what status you've got or what position you have or how much money you've got, you know, there's always things, there's always blows to your ego, basically. So, and the blows to my ego of what's got my biggest laughs. So, yeah. And, you know, early on it was being on the dole, you know, and, uh, and actually my first real solid routine that sort of got me some attention was a routine that I actually replayed on Hey Hey Saturday when they had um, that 50-year reunion or whatever last year. That was um, And the routine was me talking about going into the Dole office, you know, and saying, you know, I've been here seven years, I deserve a pay rise sort of thing. So, and, um, <laughs> you know, the joke stood the test of time and there was a lot of people just yeah. when that went to air last year saying that's great stuff and that was, you know, it was built on my life at the time and when I was on Hey 8 Saturday back then in the mid-90s, I actually was on the dial. And so there I and if you, anyone who knows who's been on unemployed, you know there's shame attached to it and you feel like a loser. Mm. Well, that was my life and I was able to go on stage and talk about it, get a laugh and feel better about my own position in life. And, uh, you know, and that was, so it really was therapy, but then I was able to parlay that into a career really. And that was my first moment on network TV where I did that routine on Hey Hat Saturday. The crowd loved it and, you know, it sort of set the ball rolling. So now it's all about being a failure and turning that into, into gold. You were saying that those jokes stood the test of time. There are always, no matter who you are, jokes that don't stand the test of time. How have you seen kind of expectations of what is and isn't appropriate fodder for a joke change during your career? Yeah, you know what? With I've because my jokes have always been about me. There's, I haven't had to change yeah. much. You know what I mean? So I've never like been to someone who's racially stereotyped people, or you know. So that's. So I've never really had to change much. No, nothing that I've done in my career really is like, you know, looked back on going, you can't say that anymore, you know. So may, there's maybe a few jokes I did about trying to pick up when I was a single guy, which you probably wouldn't do anymore. There's probably a couple <laughs> of those, a bit rough. And at the time, they, you know, there was people saying that's a bit rough. So, and I remember at the time me going, oh, God, do I still do that joke? Oh, that's, and, and, and there was a few you battle with and, and a couple that dropped out of the repertoire because of it. But generally, over my time, I've um, kept myself as the butt of the jokes mainly. And, um, yeah, which... In a way, if you can laugh at yourself, well, no one can stop you laughing at yourself. Do you know what I mean? You can't cancel yourself. So. How do you look after your own self-esteem when so much of your work is about self-deprecation? Well, you realise that there's no need for self-esteem. You, life is funny. And the more you realise, if the more you get rid of your own ego, there's nothing to lose. There's absolute, and that's what when I had that first gig that no one laughed at. What, one of my epiphanies, you know, in that sort of few days afterwards, where I was sad, was that I haven't lost anything. There's nothing to lose. An ego is just a weight that you don't need. It's it doesn't it doesn't do anything for you. And, and I'm only I'm good on stage or I'm good anywhere when I'm in the moment, when in the moment, there's no ego. It's, it's, it's an illusion. There's no need to worry about your self-esteem. How does being part of an ensemble like a radio team or when you were co-hosting the project for a long period, how does that sit with 
someone like you who is used to being on stage solo and doing all the work yourself for the laughs. Yeah, look, it's, it, it can be tricky, no doubt about it. And then, then that is that ego can get, you know, your ego which you want to overcome and which I endeavour to overcome and still endeavour to overcome it, it still gets in the way, you know. So there is times when you are in an ensemble where you're jealous of other people getting the laughs and, it's, and you shouldn't yeah. be because then that's not healthy and it's also – a real team is where you work together and it doesn't matter who gets the last because you're all created. And it's, you know, it's like, and you know, as a sporting analogy, it's like, the, you know, playing volleyball where, you know, the guy who spikes the ball or the girl who spikes the ball is, they only spike the ball because someone put it up there, you know, and that's, mm. a, a team is where you're happy to put it up there. And I am, I, I mean, I'd like to think, and, and a lot of, you know, I'm talking myself up here and it's for other people to judge, but. I, I'd like to think that I am able to share in those situations and, uh, you know, I'm happy to be the butt of jokes or to somehow be involved in a punchline and not have to deliver the punchline but, you know, know that you're a part of setting it up. So, yeah, and that's, um, that's again, something that is, uh, you know, you can get better at basically. Yeah. Are you someone, do you think, whose work is driven more by enjoyment than purpose or the other way around? I believe good comedy is therapy for the audience as well as for the comedian. And, you know, with the the risk of sounding corny, I think that, you know, good comedy or comedians are doing a great service for the world. And, uh, you know, and if, if I can laugh at my own foibles, hopefully that helps people relax about their own foibles or their own sort of inadequacies or their own egos or their, their own BS. So yeah, there's definitely a purpose to, what I do and, and yeah, and not for me alone. Again, if I'm able to laugh, get myself to laugh, personally, that's enough. The therapy that I get out of it myself is enough and the fact that it might help other people is a real bonus. Yeah, I don't think that's speaking to, you know, going above what comedy is. I do think comedy is massively cathartic and, you know, gives you an opportunity to reflect on your own life in a way that doesn't feel too hard and doesn't feel too uncomfortable. You can't escape from the fact that everyone we know in a hundred years won't be here. Like we're just not going to be here. It's like, and in a, in, a, in a, I don't know, a billion years the sun's going to burn out. No one has any idea what we're doing. We don't know. We've got no idea what we're doing, do we? How could we? I don't know. Maybe people think they've got the answers to life, but I've yet to find someone who can adequately explain why the hell we're here. So we might as well laugh. Well, I was reading that 10, it was about 10 years ago, I think, uh, you were one of the few people granted a one-on-one interview with the Dalai Lama. Did he know what's going on? Did he know why we're here? No, and he laughed at it. And then that's that's why I really enjoyed that as very those few moments I had with him because he looked in my eyes, he said, I, I can connect with you, you've got crazy eyes. And I said, thank you. <laughs> One sort of uh, ethos, or I don't know what you call it, a belief system, I know it's not even a belief system, a way of living is the Taoist, T-A-O. That is, for yeah. anyone who hasn't looked up that stuff, T-A-O is a y- thousands-year-old sort of... Um, writings and and way of looking at the world which I really connect with actually of all the ones that's the TAO I don't know I don't know whether to say Tao or Dao do you say Dao or Tao I think it's Dao you think it's Dao anyway it's TAO the way that those guys seem to or guys and girls seem to have sussed out the world thousands of years ago it really resonates with me what do your kids think about what you do are they impressed 
Uh, they certainly don't verbalise it if they are. So they're um, <laughs> me being the butt of jokes, you know, whether it's me self being the butt of my own stories or other people being, you know, using me as the butt of jokes, they have really jumped on board that. So um, <laughs> Yeah, they're getting involved. Yeah, no, they are. They are very quick to diss their father. And every now and then I go, guys, we just need to calm down here. This, I, I am your father and I know you're being funny, but I, I, I just, you've got it myself. My, my subconscious doesn't know you're joking. And then they go, well, we're not. And I go, well, all right. My subconscious doesn't need to hear that you're not joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they are. Uh, my sons get to the point where he doesn't, yeah, he certainly doesn't name drop me. They were on the celebrity goggle box the other night, so they had a celebrity version of that, and uh, they wanted my wife to do it, and she's not a comedian or she's got no no desire to be in the spotlight, but, I um, mean, she's uh, she's great, and she whenever she does do stuff on TV, people go, she's great, she should be on TV more, and but she's not interested. But anyway, I said that she agreed to do it, and she said she can't remember agreeing to do it, and I said, you did agree to do it. So anyway, she did it with me, and then I said, well, let's get that the kids involved, and my son, who's 12, said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to a new school, Dad. I can't be seen to be associated with you. I'm like, oh, whatever, all right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not cool on TikTok, apparently. So, And um, he has more followers on TikTok than me, to be honest. So I cannot get any traction on TikTok. What do you think you're doing wrong? I don't know. I think that the algorithm is, is biased against me, so I can't. He's like, he does a basketball thing. He's into the NBA and he just puts little clips of NBA on his, I don't know, I don't know what he does. Anyway, he's got like 15,000 followers and it's like, I'm struggling to get five. That's impressive. Yeah. He actually said to me, dad, with professional help, you could be famous on TikTok. I'm like, (laughs) thanks for that. So um, he doesn't care or he's not interested. And uh, my daughters are there. They love theatre. So they are, they do take every opportunity to, uh, get involved and they'll talk on the radio and they're very funny and they and they came on the Celebrity Gogglebox and they had some lines basically mocking their father, which is me, and those are the lines that made the, that made the broadcast. So, <laughs> and they got some uh, credit for it. So anyway, they, they, they love it, but they again, they'll see, they won't tell me that they have got any respect for what I do <laughs> at all. No, that's not allowed. You've had this huge and super varied career like what's next? What sits there as the thing that you haven't done that you are still hanging out for? I would love to do some sort of scripted uh, comedy around my life, uh, which I haven't done yet, but I would like to do that. Um, I mean, I love doing stand-up comedy and I've I missed that over the sort of two years of the pandemic. So I'm really enjoying every moment back on stage. So... I want to do more of that. Maybe, you know, I do want to do specials and go, there's an hour of my stand-up and, like, really think about it, craft it and put it out there and let it sit there for, you know, on a streaming service for the next 20 years or 30 years, and you know. So I want to do more of that, plenty more of that to, could be done. And, um, look, I'm really enjoying the radio I'm doing with with, with Ed Cavalier and Aaron Molan. We're uh, just entered the Sydney market and we do a national show every night at 6 p.m. So um, I'm really enjoying that. That's a hell of a lot of fun. We had some – we laughed so much this morning. Seriously, the, the, to be able to, to exploit the ridiculous ridiculousness of life uh, through radio every day is an absolute gift. So I am enjoying that as well. And what else? I don't know. We're doing another series of The Masked Singer. <laughs> I can't. That's something. Maybe I can learn to dance. I don't know. That's something that I haven't been able to do. Yeah, there's plenty to do. So, yeah. Dave, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next. Welcome back to being on stage again with audiences. That must feel really, really good. And thanks for being my guest. Thanks, Jamila. Yeah, I appreciate the time. 
That's it for my conversation with Dave Hughes. You can see him live and on stage with his new show, Trending, which will be at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. You can get your hands on tickets at www.comedyfestival.com.au. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It is time for the weekend list and the wonderful Braun is here to help you figure out what to watch, see, do, eat, read this weekend. Braun, what have you got for us? Last night, I just turned on Netflix, was like, I'm just going to hit the first recommendation. I needed something to watch. And I saw The Adam Project, which is a new Netflix movie. It's got Ryan Reynolds, Jennifer Garner, Mark Ruffalo. Ryan Reynolds' character travels from 2050 back to 2022. Time travel exists. He's from a dystopian future. He tries to save the world with his younger self. And what I really like about it, which might be a bit silly, but it goes for a reasonable amount of time. And that's what I really like about it. It goes for like an hour 45. Usually new movies, they're all like two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, too long. Yes. When did that become cool? I don't like it. So I really enjoyed that it was just fun. It was, you know, quick paced, just a nice, fun action film and it went for a good amount of time. That's what I really liked. Well, I'm not going to explain my plan to a 12-year-old nerd with it. You don't have a plan. But I know somebody who does. Dad. I'm the godfather of time travel. The Atom Project. Prom, we know we're getting old when we're like, the film needs to go for a sensible period because <laughs> mummy can't stay up that late. Uh, speaking of sensible, I want to recommend an article that is in this quarter's Mianjin magazine. So this comes out quarterly, it comes out every season. So it's the autumn 2022 edition. And there's a piece called The Disability Pandemic by L. Gibbs. And it really resonated with me. It's a long read, but it's quite a beautiful and at times upsetting read. And it's a reminder that while for many of us, life is returning to some form of normality, there are still people in our community, including people like me who are immunocompromised or disabled, for whom returning to normal life isn't really an option yet. And somehow it was easier in a somewhat selfish way when we were all at home, when we were all bored, when we were all a little bit lonely. But Elle Gibbs in this piece expresses so beautifully what it's like when you are still living within the confines of the walls of your home and everybody else is relishing the return of theatre and movies and sport and spending time together. It really has reinforced the separation in our country between the healthy and the not. Oh, that sounds like a great read. It is stunning. I really recommend it. It is a it is an act of either being seen or of empathy to have a read of that article. What else have you got, Bron? So I've got a fiction podcast. It's called American Hostage. It's by Amazon. It's a, like a scripted fiction, but it's true crime. So it's based on a real life scenario that happened a few decades ago. Um, it stars John Hamm as the main voice actor, the guy from Mad hey. Men. I love him. Um, so it's based on real events. I, it's coming out week to week everywhere but Amazon. Amazon has the full podcast out ready to go. I'm almost at the end. So I'm at the crunch point now. I'm hooked. It's only taken me a day to get through. They're about 20, 30 minute episodes, but it's like a true crime drama of a guy who's taken someone hostage and he loves a radio personality and tries to get an interview with him. 
to say why he's doing what he's doing and taking this man hostage. It's very interesting. The soundscape is amazing. It's got, you know, just incredible voice actors in it. You'd really feel like you're there. So it's, yeah, they've done it really well. For me, there are three tenets of journalism. One, don't make it personal. Two, don't pick a side. And three, don't become the story. I broke all three of those in the span of a single phone call. Hello, this is Fred Heckman with WIBC. This is really Fred Heckman. Yes. <laughs> we got something developing downtown. Something developing. You're going to help me straighten this out for me, Mr. Heckman. You know, I trust you. That sounds awesome. I love a fiction podcast. I love a podcast that reads like a novel, except someone is telling the story to you. Yet I always find if it's a podcast rather than an audio book, it moves with more pace. And because I don't have a very long attention span, that works for me. It's very good. I want to unrecommend something, Bron, or I kind of want to part recommend and part not recommend. So this is a confusing one, folks. There is a new show on Netflix, which the algorithm was pushing very, very hard to me. It was at the cross section of my interests, clearly. It is called is it cake? I watched this. <laughs> it is a reality TV show in which people compete who have this very specific skill, which is that they can make cakes that look like real life objects. And then they bring in semi-celebrity guests as judges and they have to pick the cake from the decoys. And uh, it is a very silly show. And I'm not actually sure how they even string it out to the full hour of programming. And yet they, they managed to do this. And my son who is six years old or six and a half, as he would want me to tell you all, we've been watching it far too often and there is something really watchable about this slightly wacky host who attacks these items slash cakes with a sword to see if he can cut them open and often, you know, it is a shoe or a bowling ball or a bucket and spade and he can't cut through it and sometimes it is indeed cake. And I don't know why I'm watching Yet I am. So my recommendation is not to start because once you begin this show, for some reason you lose quite a bit of your life to continuing to watch. It's very easy to get hooked. I watched a few episodes by accident. It is honestly, it is an accident. I've almost watched the whole series by accident. So stay away, everyone. Hold your time and use it for better things. That is it for the weekend list and for the weekend briefing today. Thank you for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of the weekend briefing or indeed the briefing podcast, then you should subscribe. You can follow us in the listener app or we're wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a very nice rating and a review, please. It helps other people to find the briefing. We will be back with you bright and early on Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.